Dave's Five Hot Takes. Yeah! Welcome back, everybody, to Dave's Five Hot Takes. This is Dave. I am really excited about this episode. It's actually the second installment in our Q&A episodes, our questions and answers, where I asked you guys to uh, ask me questions. <laughs> I just realized how redundant that is, that I ask you to ask me questions. Um, but uh, And you guys did not uh, fail to deliver. These were really great questions. This one was as fun, if maybe not a little more than the first episode. Um, these are deep dives, too. I try not to, I try to pick the ones that I think everybody can kind of relate to, because there's some really great specific ones in there, but I'm, I think some people might get a little uh, cross-eyed and or just <laughs> uninterested. So I tried to pick some that were kind of fun for everybody. Uh, hopefully, of course, I'm biased because they're basically all fun for me. So uh, I, I got my smart hat on. I've done some push-ups. Uh, I've cried a little bit and I'm still sweaty. So that means I'm ready to answer some questions. Let's do it. Hot take one. All right, we're coming in hot with this first hot take. I loved this question. This is actually a question from a dear friend of mine, Parker Welling, who's a songwriter here in Nashville. She's amassing more hits than a bong at Woodstock in her career. She's so good. So I felt really honored that old P-dubs would ask me this. So thanks a lot, Golita. Uh, what does Fast Car, why does Fast Car by Tracy Chapman work? The structure is so bizarre that you got a Fast Car line should not be enough to carry it. All caps. It's a unicorn song. And then tell me why with a million whys. So, so I think one is just this. So that, that is just bulletproof, bulletproof acoustic guitar part. One of my, I think, in my opinion, hot take, top 10 acoustic guitar parts of all time. That That is absolutely as good as you can write a guitar part. And so I think, one, it's that it's just that. I think it's, and, and it's this weird thing where I feel like I could listen to that acoustic guitar part, just those two bars or whatever it is, a million times in a row and never get tired of it, which is like finding a diamond in the rough. So I think that's one. I also think it's the juxtaposition of the melody and what the verses are about versus that guitar part. In other words, like the beauty of that guitar part versus this verse that just kind of feels like stream of consciousness singing. And look, don't I'm not saying it's a bad melody. That melody is actually really incredible. But it doesn't feel like the guitar to me. It feels like a whole other song. And then you add the lyric. It's so many words and it's so pedestrian. Like the lyric is not anything that's very profound necessarily. It's just kind of like calling it like you see it, you know, like, um, and so I think there's something about that that makes it profound. I think if she had tried to write a love song where the melody followed the guitar, it wouldn't be as good because it's too much of one thing. So it's like you kind of like to, you sort of get two songs in one. You get this sort of like ranty, super wordy, almost um, feels very folky uh, 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 verses versus this beautiful guitar part that feels like a distant cousin of yesterday, or, uh, uh, Blackbird almost in a weird way. Um, so I think it's the juxtaposition of those things. <clears throat> I also think that that is a puzzle that hooks into itself, you know, that, that those two things kind of become this puzzle, this yin and yang that form, form a perfect circle. I also think that, that, um, ah, yeah, is it gonna feel it? That's a hook. That's, a, that's, that's a hook melody. I mean, that, that's a very substantial singable, melody 
And so it's not just that this song is sort of like throwaway other than guitar part. That's not it. I mean, I ain't got a feeling that I belong. I feel that I could be someone, could be someone. That's a hook too, by the way. The repetition of that. I don't sleep on the genius of even that. Um, and so I think it's 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 it has hooks. Obviously, it's got huge hooks, but it's sneaky. I remember hearing the song the first couple of times, and before I was even writing songs, and being so sort of let down by that um, <clears throat> that my cough beats fast felt like I was drunk. I was just like, man, that's not where I wanted this song to go. I wanted it to have like a hook, but then the payoff ah, yeah, that's definitely a hook. So it does kind of eventually get there, but so I think. To me, P-Dub and everybody else who's listening and wondering, I think it is the juxtaposition. I think it's the beautiful guitar part against a really random, weird melody and verse that actually makes it better. Each of those things make each other better. Because I think if you had a song that had a bunch of words and an uninteresting guitar part, you've heard that folk song a million times. And then you've also heard the guitar part melody where it follows the you know the, the, the melody of, that you're singing that follows the guitar part that can be cool but can get really uninteresting. So I think it's actually both those and the subject matter. I think the fact that it feels so pedestrian and in this woman sort of staring out her window or something, just writing whatever she sees, sort of gives this beautiful guitar part even more um, weight and sort of concrete to be profound. Not to mention that, like I said, the hooks that that are already in there that you know that, that really do make it listenable over and over and over. Hot take two. So Brycers, which is B-R-Y-C-E-R-S on Instagram. I should figure out the real name because it sounds like a robot. Brycers, the robot ninja chopping tomato machine um so it's and this is what Breitzer said Lisa Loeb has the greatest ever written song that doesn't have a chorus I'm gonna push back a little bit of that with stay which is an amazing song are there any other songs without a chorus that have made it big like that um so so here's what's crazy about stay and this is I love these questions I actually did the deep dive to realize that that Breitzer's he or she is absolutely right. Um, stay doesn't really have a chorus. It repeats the chords, and I love when songs do this, where they repeat the chords, but the but there isn't a repeated melody and or lyric in that song ever, except the very end, where she says, "You say only hear what I want to." She does that at the very beginning. I think that's the lyric she says twice, but so she only does that twice. That's the only time she does. She does uh, that, and that's a real coup. That's a like, you're pulling off quite the thing when you can do a song that's a hit like that that doesn't actually have a chorus. Some of the trick that's happening is your ear gets used to the chords, so it's kind of like, oh yeah, this is where the chords change. So this much mean this must mean it's a chorus, even though she doesn't actually sing the same thing again and changes the melody pretty much every time too, uh, which would take me forever to show you on guitar. I thought about doing. it. I was really close. I studied enough to do it, but it's not worth doing. Just go listen to the song. But I think you'll be amazed to realize which which is a great call by. Bryce's here that she never repeats anything. It literally is just a, it feels like a free flow of information that's incredibly singable and hooky and memorable. So so to answer the question, now I, I did a little bit of a deep dive here, but I didn't come up with much. I'll tell you the one song that I can think of that is is very much the same vibe as Jeff Buckley's Last Goodbye. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, in that song, Jeff never repeats the same thing. He just kind of sings the, through the song. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible tour de force vocally one but just of of like memorable things that never repeat which is exactly what Lisa Loeb's song is 
Um, and I love that. I love that it just it keeps going. It grows and changes and changes. Now, there were a lot of close calls in this. I looked up some articles that had songs, you know, without choruses, but it wasn't true because they would repeat things. And to me, I was looking for a song that just never repeated anything. It just went the whole way through and never repeated anything. You know, like they tried to say that Drive by R.E.M. was like that, which it's not because it has a part of repeats. Losing My Religion, they wanted, I read an article that said it doesn't have a chorus, but I would call it a chorus because it sings the same thing twice throughout the song. And, and some people so it's like another verse, but it's the same lyrics and everything. So to me, I would sort of air quotes call that a chorus. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody fits, but Bohemian Rhapsody isn't a song. It's it's a work of genius that needs to be hung in a museum somewhere. It's like it's too good to even be called a song, in my opinion. So because it's it's like a period piece slash art music installation. So I don't even consider that though. It, it doesn't ever have a chorus. Um, and it doesn't repeat. Um, I guess it does repeat the very end. That's funny. Um, another close call, and I really enjoy. I got a kick out of this because it's the exact same thing that Lisa Loeb does. Is "Hey Jude" by the Beatles, which it sort of mess mess with me because I realize he does do the. Um, he they repeat, which I'm blanking right now, but they repeat that part at the end. Um, um, about oh about her oh I'm in love got Lisa Love stuck in my head but anyway so so but what's similar about Hey Jude and uh, Stay is that they both end the songs with the ver- with the first part of the song lyric but it's kind of quickly passed through so I thought that was kind of fun that both those songs are the same that way these are hard songs to come by especially um, not just folk songs because you can write a million songs that never have like a chorus and they just have verses. But, but I think when you have songs that actually have chords that change, so it feels like it's a chorus, but then every time those chords change again, they're not the same melodies. That's, that's a real feat. And I think it's especially a feat in sort of the pop rock, you know, popular music canon. It's really hard to find those. Hot take three. All right. I got to give some big props here to the Warren David on Instagram. Uh, this was a really great question that was so fun to figure out. So this is the question asked, are there any covers that you think better fit the song than the original? And what about those covers made it stand out? Uh, I wrote a little blurb after this to kind of, there's a little asterisk I have to put to this. This is a taste question, which is tricky uh, because, you know, you can go hear someone cover um, a song that you love and then you may go, oh my gosh, I like this guy's song, you know, this version better than the other. And the guy next to you is like, oh, I like the first one better. So I think that is, that it's a taste question a little bit. So what I try to do is get data on them, meaning did the song chart higher, did the newer version of it chart higher than the old one? Did the newer one do more for the artist's career than the first one did? You know, um, did it sell more records than the first version did? Um, and it's fun too, because usually we think the original versions of things always outshine the cover, but you know, a lot of times, um, cause that's what you're used to, but a lot of times that's not the truth because, and I wrote this too, you know, the new versions of things can be more potent because it's newer. It has a newer sound. It has better sounds. The microphones sound better. The, the, the machines that the music is running through as it's recorded sound better. So you just, it just sounds better. It doesn't sound as old and, you know, hissy or whatever. Ever. So new new recordings have a little bit of a cheat code on the old recordings because they just are going to sound better. It has a drum loop and that sounds hip and cool, you know, versus like some guy playing drums on it 30 years ago. So I think those are important things to add uh, to that. But I wrote, there were a lot of these. I found some really great articles on 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 this. So some of this is me cheating, but um, 
but I wanted to add my opinion to these like, you know, eight or nine that I thought were, were good examples of this. So uh, one of this would be Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. So the first version of this was by um, Leonard Cohen, I, which I think I think most people would agree with me that Hallelujah that Jeff Buckley's version of this is is the best version of this song, and and I think it's because he's probably one of the best singers that's ever lived, and not just could he sing, but his performance of the song is so angelic and aching, and I think. You know, and I think I've seen where Leonard Cohen loved it too, because it's like, how do you write a song that needs to be sung like this? And then once it does, you're like, I don't know, I like mine a little more. And Leonard Cohen, God bless him, was not the world's greatest singer. And Jeff Buckley just might be. So I think that was an incredible example of when you have a song that that finds a singer that you go, oh my gosh, like that is incredible, which is kind of what happened on this next song too with I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton slash Whitney Houston. Fun fact about that song, she wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You, I think in the same day, if not the same morning, Dolly Parton did. But again, this is something where you have Dolly Parton, who's an incredible singer, but then Whitney Houston, who's undoubtedly one of the probably best 20 singers that's ever lived. And and it was a newer version. It was captured in a way that was so different and so much more, you know, uh, just from an audible sense, it sounded better just from, an, you know, like... Uh, just hearing it, you could hear her voice, and it was it was just massive. Plus, I think soundtrack songs sometimes get like a cheat because you associate them with with you know the movie, and the movie was a big hit. Um, another one, "Respect" by Aretha Franklin, was a re- originally an Otis Redding song, and I think that one works well. And I'm not going to say better than Otis because Otis is amazing, but hearing a woman sing "Respect" is a very different thing than hearing a man sing "Respect." I think that that helped out a lot. "Hurt" by Johnny Cash, that was originally a Nine Inch Nails song. That's a great example, and a lot of these, and I'm going to talk about after this, are like this, where it you didn't cover it in the style of the original song. Hearing a, I think he was in his late '80s, early '90s, maybe when Johnny sang this. Hearing what he's singing is so different than hearing a young you know, sort of computer metal band or whatever you would call Nine Inch Nails, hard rock singing Hurt. It's totally different because it transforms the song. It's so much more gentle. It's him and an acoustic guitar and you can just really hear it. So that, that's that's one of those. Another one, Killing Me Softly by the Fugees was originally a Roberta Flack. And that's that's exactly what I, this song, it sort of exemplifies what I meant. And when you have, you put something to an updated uh, genre, like, uh, you know, like R&B soul in 1990, whatever that was, is so much different than it was in the 70s when that got released. It had a loop. It felt good. It was a lot more funky and soulful. Um, Downtown Train by Rod Stewart uh, is another funny example of a Tom Waits song. Tom Waits is one of the greatest songwriters in the history of time. But, I mean, it's hard to say he's he's a beautiful singer. Now, is he an incredible singer? Yes, because that guy can communicate like nobody else when he sings, but he's not somebody I think you'd be like, I want to hear him sing the Star Spangled Banner, although it'd be very entertaining. But then you have Rod Stewart, who is a really beautiful singer, singing a song, and all of a sudden it's transformed that way. You know, it's just kind of what happened with Hallelujah. Uh, Just a couple more, Gotta Get You Into My Life by Earth, Wind & Fire, and originally by the Beatles. This is a really, I love when covers do this. When the Beatles is a straight ahead kind of, gotta get you into my life, boop, 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 boop. It sounds like white 
English boys singing it. And then you get Earth, Wind and Fire. And it's literally like what happens if, if you know, a soul band covered this song and they just crush it. I like their version. I like the original one. I love the cover of that with Earth, Wind and Fire because they do everything right to make it funky. Finally, this was a fun one. Neil Diamond's Red, Red Wine that was then covered by UB40. That's where you show again where the genre change can do to a song because you have Neil Diamond's, which sounds kind of like this. It sounds like an Italian wine song. I think it's it's just kind of lopes along. And then UB40 makes it reggae and it's a super hit. Um, and you know, I'll say this finally. Um, you never know. I think that's what's fun about songs and great songs can be interpreted different ways and work in different ways, um, no matter what genre you put them, put them in, because the melodies work and the sentiment works. And those are the songs that are really cool to me. And that's why I chose those songs. And I think that's why it's such a fun uh, question to answer, because cover songs, songs that are great can be covered a million times, and they're still just as good as the first iteration of that song. Hot take four. This is a fun one, especially for the drummer and me. Jesse Mutz asks this. Pink Floyd's Money, song Money, is in 7-8. And it feels so natural. Any other odd time signatures in pop music beyond three, four, and six? So here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to get too complicated. You can look this up on your own if you want to like a deep dive. But basically, there are two um, main time signatures used in popular music. One is four, four, which is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So you're two and four in a four, four bar. Are your snare drum and usually your one and three or your bass drum. That's what that's what um, you know beat it is. So you know you hear a million songs that the other is is six eight. So one two three four five six one two three four five six that right. So that's mi- really the main two time signatures. So when he says are there any other odd times, that means songs that um, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. We go so. Let me say this as we talk about odd time and odd time signatures. For those who are wanting to really do kind of a fun little research on their own, three really great records that I would consider popular records that were pretty significantly um, odd time signature heavy are Dave Brubeck, which, yes, is an old jazz record called uh, Time Out of Mind. Um, Sting, Ten Summoner's Tales, which is If I Ever Lose My Faith in You, I think is on there. Um it's a great record, probably my favorite record of his. And then Soundgarden, Super Unknown, which had Spoon Man and Fell on Black Days. And I love all three of those records, but a lot of odd time signature stuff on those. So when he says, uh, as Jesse asks, um, what are the other songs that would be songs that have that were popular that had odd time signatures? So actually, Dave Brubeck's Take Five. That's in five. One, two, three, four, five. So that's in five. Uh, that's in five four. Here's what's tricky about it is a lot of people are like, why are you telling us a popular song that's a jazz song? Fun fact: biggest selling jazz single of all time. Of all time, that record is also a huge hit record too. Uh, another one, "Say a Little Prayer" by Aretha Franklin. Um, it uses now. I cheated on this. I found a great article that had these. Um, uh, so it uses both 10-4 and 11-4 as well as measures of common time. So you guys know, say a little prayer for me. So that was, or say a prayer for you. Both, either me or you, we both in prayer. Um, another one is Salisbury Hill. <laughs> Salisbury Hill. Salisbury Hill. God, that's hard to say. By uh, Peter Gabriel. Um, 
Bam 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 one two three four five six seven one two three That song is so good. Um and it's in every movie trailer ever known to man. Um Another one, Spoon Man by Soundgarden. So it's kind of a slow seven, but um, which was me running in high school. Uh, but Spoon Man, that record, uh, Super Unknown, I didn't, I didn't like alternative rock at all. Like I literally didn't have any of those records or anything. I moved to Knoxville. When I was an upcoming junior in 1994, and that album came out, and a friend of mine who was kind of like cool and alt rock used to play it on our way to school every morning, and I fell in love with that record, especially the drummer in me, because it, because Matt Cameron, who now plays for Pearl Jam, uh, played uh, for Soundgarden at the time, and he's kind of a he's kind of like one of the OG odd time hard rock drummers. That guy is a monster. Um, and then lastly, a really fun one, Hey Ya by Outkast. Uh, it has a 11-4 time signature, and I'm I'm completely ripping this off an article. 11-4 um, time signature was best counted as three measures of 4-8, one of 2-8, and two of 4-8. <laughs> so if you ever listen to that song, you'll get it. Hey, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. It's, so it's it's weird. And if you ever listen to it, you probably know, like, something's weird here. And it a lot of time signature stuff like that, especially, um, you know, songs like Hey Ya can be counted a lot of different ways, but... Uh, either way, it's an odd time in signature. It's not just four or six, not four, four, six, eight. Um, and these songs are fun to sort of sniff out and find. And you probably know some that I'm forgetting, but um, these are the ones that I thought were really significant. Hot take five. This last question was like a big um, hug to me. It felt like a question hug, which would be, that's going to be my name uh, of the next uh, uh, funk band I'm in. Question hug tonight at the Roxy. Um, here, so Emma Hammond tree, which I'm assuming her name is Emma and not Emma ham. And then the last part of her name is, or last name is Montree, Emma ham Montree. But Emma asked this very great question. How does being a songwriter work? Do you sell rights to your songs permanently? Do people whose songs get covered over and over, get royalties for every cover, et cetera, super interested in the ins and outs. So I'm going to try to explain this in a way that doesn't get too heady because it, it can get, I wouldn't call it really confusing, but it can get a little confusing. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with um, what I talk about uh, elsewhere on the podcast. And so I think it's good to sort of address this now because it'll inform a lot of other conversations that I've either had or we will have sort of moving forward or points in hot, hot takes that I make. So so basically, that's exactly right. Emma, you nailed it. Um, when you write a song, um, you then, assuming that someone doesn't own or co-own your publishing, which is your songs, um, let's just, but let's don't get in all that. Let's say I write a song and I'm not tied to any business or anybody. I'm, I own my own songs. If I write a song, I then own that copyright. Now, when somebody goes out and records that copyright and it goes out that song and it goes out into the world, I get paid for every time that it's played on the radio. I get paid for every time that it's played at an arena or played in a live music setting by a band or an artist. Um, I also get paid every time that it's played on TV uh, any media uh, as a songwriter, I get paid for. Um, and obviously, you add a co-writer to that, meaning someone you wrote it with, and you just start splitting it like a pie. Um, and I'm not going to get into publishing and co-publishing and stuff. I may talk about that someday. But basically, 
so, so when someone, I, I get asked this all the time, especially with Guy Gave Me You, uh, a song I wrote that Blake Shelton covered and, and was a big song for him. People always ask, oh, you still selling your songs? Or I see you sold that song to Blake. I didn't sell that song. Uh, you can sell your songs, which I'll talk about in a second, but I still own that song. So the beauty of that song and what's really fun about songwriting and when people cover your songs is that you know every time Blake had that song played his version or he was out playing that song on the road, I was getting paid for him playing that song. And so it's a really cool gig if you can get it because you can stay home and watch Stranger Things at night and you know someone is out rocking a mic to thousands of people and you're getting paid for it. So it's a really great uh, it's it's a really great setup that way, and and then two, you know, if you own the copyright, you can sell the copyright. So that means somebody could come to me and say, "Hey, Dave, I want to buy God gave me you from you." Um, and what you do in that situation is is a lot like selling a book of business. It's they sell it on um, on futures, which means they predict what it will make according to what it's made over the next. 10 years, 15 years, if you're really lucky, and then they pay you that, and then you don't own the copyright anymore. They own it, but you got paid up front for what it they think it probably was going to make, and that's your sort of risky cash out, and it's their risky payout. Um, and so that's kind of a whole, again, we can cover this stuff more later, but yes, so, so I think that's, and I, the main point I want to make is that you don't when someone covers a song that I write, I didn't sell the song. They're like leasing it and paying me. It's almost like they're paying rent on a song. And every time that they play it, I get paid or it gets played on the radio. I get paid or every time it gets bought on a CD. If you guys remember what those were on a record or on Spotify, those get played as a songwriter. I get paid for that, which is really awesome. And I'm thankful for Yes, I am. (laughs) And before I go, a quick heads up. Make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. And if you wouldn't mind rating the podcast, that'd be better than tickling a baby and listening to that sweet little giggle. (laughs) Also, share with a friend. And if you don't have a friend, that's okay. I don't really either. Just recommend it to me on my socials at Dave Barnes Music. Because I've actually never listened to this podcast. It's just too much Dave. And yes, that's a thing. Well, that was really fun. I always I feel like I say that at the end of every podcast, but I really do have a blast doing these. And I think sort of especially these Q&A ones because um, it's not things I'm naturally thinking about. I have to sort of find out things and do some deep dives. And and it's sort of cyclically, whoa, is that a word? Um, beneficial for me because it's also what I do for a living. So I end up getting really inspired because I'll see some songs or you know, I'll have some moment where I go, oh my gosh, I forgot about this song. I didn't know that song was an odd time or something. And then it makes me want to write songs or it just gets me inspired, which is a win. So ultimately does sort of all about me, I guess. But I'm really thankful you guys tagged along. Um, and I feel like I learned a ton. Uh, and I hope that you did too. But I'll tell you one thing we didn't learn. And that's that pop supergroup Gnarls Barkley was named after NBA star Akeem Olajuwon. All right, well, thanks for hanging out, guys. We'll see you next time on Days 5 Hot Takes. Yeah!